Revelation chapter 8 and verse 1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we come before you now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the help and strength of your Spirit. And we do ask, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to be silent in our hearts and minds. Lord, as we look forward to both the day of your return, but Lord, to prepare us for that dreadful day of your judgment. Give us grace to receive your word today. Lord, I decrease that you may increase, be glorified in Christ, and we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, again, I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I do welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our study through the Apocalypse of John. Uh, This morning, brothers and sisters, we return to our uh, studies through Revelation. And last week, as you remember, we were, I pray, or the week before, greatly encouraged in chapter 7 by our great shepherd, Jesus Christ, who reminds the saints of all time that in spite of great tribulation that we will experience here on earth, he will one day finally lead his people into the promised land, the Canaan above. Because our robes have been washed white in the blood of the Lamb, we will be before the throne of God and we will serve him, the scriptures say, day and night. We will hunger no more. We will thirst no more. All worldly afflictions that oppress us now, they will all but be removed. Christ will hold us fast. Christ will lead us home. Christ has promised that he will wipe every tear from our eyes. We noted last time that this letter is not scattered puzzle pieces that we must labor to put together, but rather this apocalyptic letter is a pastoral epistle from our great shepherd, Jesus Christ. It is a letter of care and comfort for sheep suffering violence and opposition from the forces of darkness. That we might find solace and comfort knowing that the gates of hell shall not prevail against Christ and his church. And praise be to God, brothers and sisters, for the book of Revelation. Let us praise God that we need not any longer, I hope, Fear opening the pages of Revelation. It's not meant to create fear, but courage. It's not meant to confuse, but to clarify. We can read this letter and rejoice that Christ gives his suffering saints here on earth. It gives us a lighthouse of truth that we can cling to in the darkness of this world. Today, we come to the eighth chapter of Revelation and to the breaking of the seventh and final seal. The word of the Lord says, when the lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. 
When the sixth seal was broken, John was given a vision of heaven and earth being rolled up like a scroll in the sixth chapter. The earth and sky are shaken. They are dismantled by their creator. But this destruction, this rolling up of a scroll, it's held back by God. Until all of his elect ones are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Sealed through the hearing and believing of the gospel. Because of the way that chapter 7 ends though, God will wipe every tear from their eye. We, and I say we meaning me too, we might assume that the next verse would then detail for us the saints in the new creation. Home. Instead, when the Lamb breaks the seventh seal, there is silence in heaven for about half an hour. The scriptures do, do not say that there was silence on earth. That may be difficult for some of us to understand, but in light of the destruction, we might rightly imagine that there would be horrific shrieks of terror upon the earth at the judgment of God. In fact, at the end of the sixth chapter, John actually gives is given a vision of what will be said when God's judgment comes. John sees that, that the unbeliever will say, to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us. I hope that you're tracking with me. Silence in heaven, but not necessarily silence on earth. Here's what's being said on earth. Fall on us by the unbeliever. Rocks and mountains, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne. For the wrath of the Lamb, the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? It appears that there is anything but silence on earth. When God executes his judgment. But it is surprising when we see that there is silence in heaven. Now why is that surprising? It's surprising because up until now, there has been, if you will, nothing but chatter in heaven. In heaven there has been constant, constant speaking, constant speaking, uh, constant singing, uh, constant noise, if you will, being made in heaven. Chapter 4 and verse 8, John is given a vision into the heavenly court where the living creatures do not cease, do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. They do not cease to say. In Revelation 4 and verse 11, John sees the 24 elders, some of this, constantly confessing God's worthiness to receive honor and glory and power. Constantly, they, they say on a, almost on a day and night basis, if you will. In Revelation 5, verses 9 through 14, new songs are breaking forth through the Lamb when the Lamb receives the scroll to break its seals. In Revelation 6, the martyrs of faith are under the altar and they are crying aloud. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? In Revelation 7, John hears the song of salvation sung by the saints. The angels stand around the throne, the elders and the living creatures who worship God with their face to the ground, saying the sevenfold celebration of God's worthiness. John sees that the saints are serving in the temple of God and they are doing so in the presence of God day and night. All of this to say, it seems as though there is 
There is never a time when there is not praise and glory and honor being offered up to God vocally. That there is constant speaking, constant praising, constant singing to God. What's the point? The point is, now there is only silence. In chapter 8, after all of this talking, after all of this singing, after all of this, if again, chatter, if you will, there is an ominous verse that says, and then there was silence. In heaven, where the 144,000, the multitude which no one can count, the angels, the elders, the living creatures, who constantly have something to say, are brought to a point when there is no word that can be uttered. There is only silence. Why silence? Why silence for time? What can we learn from this silence? This morning, saints, with God's help, we will seek to answer those questions from God's holy word and see what comfort we might find and also what warning we may have for this silence. Let's begin. Number one, putting things together. Number one, putting things together. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. If you're like me, like I've already said, when you come to the seventh chapter, to the end of the seventh chapter, uh, we're receiving this comfort from our shepherd who, sh- who comforts his sheep. Uh, he brings them safely home, wipes every tear from their eyes. Uh, again, you might think, we might think, I thought, that the next verse would then describe for us home, heaven. That this description of home would be of the glory of God. And, and that's why there's silence. That that the saints are looking at the glory of God and they are in awe of the glory of God. They, they are in awe of heaven, if you will. Uh, not to make fun of it, but it, it like that song, it's the, the I can only imagine part of heaven. There's a problem with it, though, isn't there? Because if you continue to read the rest of the chapter, there's lightning. And then comes thunder. And then comes an earthquake. And lightning and thunder are, are all coming in this earthquake. They are all coming in response to prayer. But we've heard these things before, haven't we? In the sixth chapter, the one with the voice of thunder commissions the first horseman to ride in judgment. At the breaking of the sixth seal, there's a great earthquake that rocks the earth. We've heard these things before. In the eighth chapter, John sees, listen to this, trees and grass and mountains burning and stars that are falling from heaven. Well, but we've seen that before, haven't we? This should cause us to say, well, wait a minute, I, I've read that before. I, I've read of stars falling. I've read of mountains uh, being toppled, if you will. These great woes or these great judgments in the eighth chapter... They're occurring because they have been decreed by God. God has decreed this judgment. That's first and foremost. God has also decreed that they would come about through the prayers of saints. 
God has decreed the judgment, the time of their judgment, but also God has decreed that, that it would be through the prayers of the saints that these judgments would come about. In chapter 6, the saints are crying out. They, they are praying to God. Uh, they are crying out to God. Not necessarily for vengeance, but for justice. They are praying that, that God would act in the manner that is according to who He is. That, that God would act justly. That, that God would be God. And in the 8th chapter, God is answering those prayers. God is being God. Which begs the question, at least for me, of chronology, time. Like I said, when reading this, we sometimes tend to forget that we have already read this. Instead, especially in Revelation, because that's normally what we do throughout Scripture, we, we read Revelation like it's a straight line. Like it's first, and then, and then second, and then, and then third. So that when we come to the eighth chapter, we might think, well, this is a timeline. But it's not meant to be read like a timeline, nor is it meant to be read in a straight line. John has seen seven seals that have been broken by the Lamb. Those seven seals have unleashed God's righteous judgment upon the earth, upon the wicked. In the 8th chapter, now John sees seven trumpets. And when each trumpet sounds, John sees parallel judgments. But let's, let's say it that way. Parallel judgments. The judgments that run side by side. Some, side by side to what? That, that's what we should be asking. John is seeing in these trumpets, and then later in chapter 16, in these bowls, he's seeing paralleled judgments. They're parallel lines. They're lines that run together. What are the judgments that John sees in these trumpets and John sees in the bowls? What are they parallel to? They are parallel to the seals that we have already seen. What do you mean? If we read this in a straight line, which appears to um, be some of our tendencies, if we read this in a straight line, then the earth that already has appeared to be destroyed looks like it's being destroyed all over again. When we've read through the seven seals, there's utter destruction. The Heaven and earth is rolled up like a scroll. But then we're coming to chapter 8 and we're seeing stars are falling again. Uh, trees are burning now. Uh, grass is withering away. Well, I thought this has already happened. It has already happened. What John is giving to us is a parallel, we're going to get to, the, to what this means, to the judgments that have already taken place. For example, when the angel blows the third trumpet in Revelation chapter 8 and verse 10, stars from heaven fall to poison all the rivers of the earth. If we took this straight line approach to Revelation or a strict chronological approach, it would be impossible for stars to fall because in Revelation 6 and verse 13, all of the stars have already fallen. Are you with me? Therefore, it is clear that the judgments of the trumpets and bowls are to run parallel to the judgments of the seals. The seven seals, the seven trumpets, 
the seven bowls, they all depict the same event, God's judgment, from different angles. The same event, God's judgment from different angles. The return of Christ, the Lord Jesus, the seals and the trumpets, the bowls, they are all the same judgment. What John sees is the judgment of God retold or recapitulated. It's a good word that you should know. Recapitulated in trumpets and bowls. Again, just from a different angle. Please excuse this analogy. Uh, if you know my background, then you'll know maybe why I'm using this. Uh, it's like seeing a fight where there is a knockout. And given being given multiple angles of the punch. The same punch, just from different angle views. Or... Football, basketball, the touchdown from different angles, uh, the winning shot, if you will, in basketball from different angles. If you're a photographer, the same person, but whose picture is being taken by five different photographers. Each of them will get a different angle. Each of them will get a different shot. Richard Phillips gives a more refined example. We might think of Revelation as a symphony. With, with its main melody of judgment and salvation working through each movement. There are variations of the melody within the various cycles reflecting the different material of the Old Testament, which John is drawing from. John sees the seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls as God's judgment from different angles. With each angle comes more information, though, about God's judgment and also the contours of history. And then also, God's wonderful redemptive purposes for his people. All of these are giving us different angles of these different things. In the seventh chapter, John alludes to the sealing of the faithful servants. That's also depicted from Ezekiel chapter 9. That the trumpet uh, judgments of chapter 8, they are calling back to, you remember, in the walls of Jericho that come tumbling down. At what? At the, the blast of the trumpets. We will see different angles of God's justice and mercy. But at each turn, we must rejoice at the victory and triumph of the Lamb who will make all things right and anew to the praise of his glorious name. So, it is important as we continue to progress in Revelation that we do not forget that we have, that we've read these things. That we've seen these things before. And they're meant for us to be carried with us as we Journey on through Revelation. They will serve our understanding as we press on. So, Revelation is not meant to be seen in a straight line. But John is recapitulating for us the judgment of God and the redemption of God from different angles. Number two. The meaning of silence. Now, let's get to that. The meaning of silence. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 8 and verse 1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. As stated earlier, many, including myself, anticipated that uh, this next verse would communicate the, the awe and the glory of God and the wonder of heaven. There are actually different views concerning the silence in heaven. But there is a sense in which the, the sense of awe that we, we've mentioned is not entirely 
incorrect. We'll, we'll explain why. There is another sense in which, in which we must understand that the sense of awe is not necessarily what is being communicated in this vision. There is a sense of awe, but not in the way that we would understand awe when it comes to Christ wiping every tear from our eye. There is something else being communicated, but there is still awe involved. Hence the silence. The reason for the awe before the glory of God and the wonder of heaven. And the reason why maybe we wouldn't take that particular view is because it does not take into account, listen to this, the horror of the moment. It does not take into account the horror of the moment. Meaning what? The horror of God's divine, righteous, perfect verdict of judgment upon the wicked. Let's just be clear. The reason for silence in heaven is not because of awe and wonder of what we see in heaven, because it doesn't fit the moment. Instead, at the breaking of the seventh seal, there is silence in heaven by all the saints, all of the elders, all of the angels, uh, the four living beasts, as we stand in awe of the sheer weight of God's judgment upon the wicked. Silence is because God is judging the wicked. The seventh seal continues the theme of the sixth seal, introducing the last judgment of God upon the inhabitants of the earth. The saints are protected at this time. The saints are able to stand before the presence of God as their reward for faithful perseverance. But the wicked, they beg for rocks and mountains to fall upon them. They have no place to hide when judgment from God comes. The seventh seal is the answer to the request of the prayers, saints, the saints of the prayers or prayers of the saints in the sixth, sixth chapter and sixth seal. They are the saints who are under the altar of God praying for justice and God hears their prayers. God answers their prayers. In this seventh seal, God shows himself to be just and righteous at the conclusion of history. Which should be a comfort for all of the saints. God shows himself to be just and righteous. The, the saints can be encouraged uh, that God is unchanging. That he is both just and he is righteous. Uh, when we think of silence, we must not imagine emptiness. We must not imagine nothingness, if you will. Uh, often when we are going through our liturgy and through worship, we have these, these moments where we are pausing for, uh, for contemplation. And in those moments, there's no movement from us. In those moments, there's, there's silence. There's in our minds, the, uh, uh, by by faith coming to Christ and by faith bringing all of ourselves to Christ in those moments of contemplation. We are inactive. It seems as though those moments of contemplation that, that everything in the world has almost come to a stop, isn't it? But God has not stopped. 
God is ever at work. Even now, God is at work. He is at work ruling and governing creation. Even now, God is at work. He is at work drawing sinners, his elect ones, to himself through the means of the gospel. Even now, God is at work. He is sanctifying you saints and conforming you to Christ. He is at work meeting his people as we worship him in spirit and in truth. At the end, Christ, our God, God in Christ, uh, will work in executing judgment upon the wicked. Silence is not emptiness here. It's not as though nothing is taking place during this moment of silence. God's judgment is taking place. And though we are not moving, though we are still, God is not. Heaven can only look on. We can do nothing but be still before the judgment of God. Now, some have argued that this seventh seal is the only seal without content. And so in order to fill the content, some have attempted to fill the so-called emptiness with the seven trumpets and seven bowls. But the scriptures disagree. The scriptures associate silence with divine justice. Psalm 115, verse 17 says, Idolaters who die abide in silence. Psalm 31, 17, Those who persecute God's people are judged by God, and they will sit in the silence of Sheol. Ezra 6.39 and 7.30 speak of silence at the end of history, when all of the inhabitants of earth, which is a reference to the wicked, die immediately before the judgment of God. Isaiah 45, uh, Ezra 27, Amos 8, Lamentations 2, they all testify to the silence of Babylon and Israel. Because of God's judgment against them. First Samuel uh, 2 speaks of silence of the wicked because of the judgment of God. What's the point? The overwhelming point is that the testimony from Scripture is that when God executes judgment, there will be great silence. When the seal is broken, the silence is the response of heaven as God executes his judgment upon the wicked. Uh, this judgment is coming from God, from his holy temple. The duration of silence is to be said for about a half an hour. The, the meaning of the duration, that half an hour, it, it's, it's not entirely clear. But it also is not meant to be taken literal. It's most likely a reference to the suddenness and consequent crisis of the appointed time of God's judgment of the ungodly. The reference points to periods of time like Daniel. When Daniel was speechless because of his troubled thoughts after hearing of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the scriptures say that Daniel was troubled for about an hour. As God reveals to him the judgment that would come upon the wicked. It is... It's... This period of silence is, is a period of silence because of the gravity of the moment. Uh, the, the weightiness of the moment. It is, if you will, a holy hush as God executes judgment. There's a holy hush that comes upon uh, the constant vocalizing of praise in heaven 
because of the dread of the horrific judgment of God. That language is strong, isn't it? The horrific judgment of God. That language must not be softened. That language does not do justice to just how horrific the judgment of God will be. It's the only word that I can think of to describe the judgment of God. Think about this. For the unrighteous, that is, for the person who does not believe in Christ, that is, for the person who constantly rejects Christ, the judgment of God will be eternal separation from God. Is that not horrific? The person who is an unbeliever, the judgment of God will be this. They will not share in the inheritance of Christ. Is that not horrific? For the unbeliever, it means that they will have no place in the New Jerusalem, the city of God. Brothers and sisters, that is absolutely horrific. It means they will not receive glorified bodies at the resurrection of the dead. That is terrifying. They will be raised but to experience the second death. They will be in torment for eternity. Is that not horrific? Dear ones, horrific is not strong enough of a word to describe the weight of God's judgment. It is more horrific than horrific. You remember when God's people were slaves in Egypt, For hundreds of years they were oppressed. They were oppressed by the Egyptians until God heard their cry of deliverance. Their cry for deliverance. God sends the prophet Moses. And he comes to Egypt with a message of deliverance. Freedom from oppression so that God's people might worship him. Pharaoh, time and time again, hardened his heart toward God's commands. Again and again, until he eventually releases God's people. The great exodus. The people, they hurry, the people of Israel, they hurry to escape Egypt until once again Pharaoh hardens his heart and his army pursues the people of God through the desert. The Egyptian army chases the people of God to the edge of the Red Sea. And when it seemed as though they would be captured and killed, God miraculously splits the sea so that his people might escape through dry land. He holds back the Egyptian army. And allows his people to escape through the waters of the sea. He, you've heard this language before, holds back the waters. Until every single one of his people have reached safely the other side. As they hurry to get to the other side, God's holding back the waters. And when the last of God's people has securely reached the other side of the sea... God no longer holds back the waters of judgment, but unleashes his fury on the Egyptian army, causing the sea to swallow the horse and the rider. Imagine, young ones, imagine you are on the other side of the waters and you have just been saved by God and you have seen God now. Release those waters on the Egyptian army. And you can see with your eye the faces of those soldiers being wiped away by God's judgment. What would you say? 
think you would say what we are saying now? Absolutely nothing. As you observe the horror of God's judgment. Silence will be our response. Early Jewish tradition says that when God overthrew the Egyptians in the sea, he caused a judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was silent when God arose in judgment to save the meek. This is the essence of the cry of the wicked in Revelation chapter 6. The great day of their wrath has come, the wicked say. Who is able to stand? Dennis Johnson says, Silence is creation's expected response to the glory or to the Lord's impending arrival of judgment. And Zechariah 2.13 says, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. Silence is judgment. Judgment that we observe and can say nothing but stand in awe and in fear of God's judgment. Not fear in that we are afraid of his judgment, but in absolute reverence of the one who executes judgment upon the wicked. Third and finally, the appropriateness. The appropriateness of silence. Revelation 8 and verse 1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Brothers and sisters, I approach this final point with much compassion. So I ask that you would receive it, not as a word from man, but as a word from God. And from his scriptures that are breathed out by God. If you have repented of your sin, confessed Christ as Savior and Lord alone, God declares that you have been sealed. You've been sealed by his spirit. You are those who have been given the uh, the enduring seal of God's Holy Spirit and evidenced your faith through obedience to God's word. We believe that we are saved by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. We believe that evidence of our faith is found in our obedience to God's law. If one confesses Christ but rejects his law and will not obey it, he is not saved. He is not sealed. God has promised that his love for you is one that is before the foundation of the world. One that will endure when the foundations of the world are shook. The love of God for his sealed ones is a preserving love. You shall be preserved though you experience tribulation. And through every tribulation, those who belong to Christ will not be lost. The love of God is an enduring love. It will endure beyond the grave. Praise be to God. You shall, therefore, be among the 144,000. You shall, therefore, be among that great multitude that no one can count. You shall, therefore, stand before the Lord God, clothed in robes of righteousness, with palm branches in your hands, crying out, if you will, Hosanna, salvation to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You are a part of that great number. Your robes, brothers and sisters, will be washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. And you will be in his presence day and night. And you will fellowship with him. And that fellowship will never end. How glorious is that for you? The promise of the new covenant. 
Jeremiah 32, 38. They will be my people. I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way so that they will fear, fear me always for their good and for the good of the children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that they will not, that I will not turn away from them to do good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. The promise of the new covenant according to Jeremiah 31, 34. They will not teach again each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and their sin I will re- remember no more. Praise be to God. We will be in his presence. Our sin will be removed. We will share in the inheritance of Christ. We shall reign with Christ. We will be like Christ. Uh, what glories and precious promises that God gives to us. And they are truly Precious remedies for Satan's, against Satan's devices. What is more, we will also be among those who are silent in heaven. We will be among those who are silent when God executes his perfect judgment. Dear ones, hear this. Some of those who we will observe being judged and who we will have nothing to say when that moment happens will be those whom we love within our own very families, some who are our friends, some who are our closest confidants. They are those who, at least at this point, have heard the gospel and they have yet to repent of their sin and trust in Christ alone. They are not showing forth evidence that they have repented. They are not showing forth evidence that they are living a life in obedience to God, that they have truly been converted. They are kind. They are giving. They have wonderful qualities that we adore. But all of those wonderful qualities are viewed by God, the one who sits upon heaven's throne, as being needed to be washed in the blood of Christ. The prophet Isaiah says, as you well know, he describes all of our righteous deeds as not in fact being righteous, but as being unclean rags, clean in our sight, but unacceptable before God. These ones that we love, will be those who will be judged for their consistent rejection of the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Day after day, they have been given opportunities to repent of their sin, to turn to Christ. But they, just like Israel, have hardened their hearts and refused to come to the one who is able to save them from judgment. They have become gospel hardened, hardened to the hearing of the gospel. They've heard it from you time and time again. You are almost apprehensive to speak to them because they already know what you're going to say. Last week, Brother Javier and Brother Dustin were doing something unfamiliar to me. They were welding. And as they were welding in the darkness, sparks began to fly. Javier and Dustin were standing near the sparks as if it as if they've been accompanied to uh, friends of Sparks all their lives. 
Sparks are falling on Javier's shoes and on Dustin's hands, and I'm looking away. I cannot bear even the sight, the, the brightness of the, the sparks. But for Dustin and Javier, sparks don't bother them. And so it is with some of our unbelieving family and friends. The sparks of the gospel, they don't bother them. They don't phase them any longer. Maybe initially there was some response. Maybe initially there was some reaction. But now their hearts have become hardened to where when the sparks of the gospel fly, it doesn't even cause them to turn their face away. They're unmoved. Israel was our example of what not to do. The writer of the Hebrews says, don't harden your hearts like Israel did. They were an example to us. Don't be like them. For all of their privileges, all of their privileges. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, for all of your privileges, the prophets have been sent to you. The word of God has been sent to you. And yet, time and time again, you harden your heart. Israel, like our loved ones sometimes, Israel believed they had more time. That there was still yet another sermon to hear. Little ones. Older ones. Middle aged ones. Whatever age you may be. Do not take for granted that this sermon you will hear again. Do not take for granted that there will be another Lord's Day. This may be the last sermon you hear. They believed, like some of our loved ones do, that they had more opportunities to believe in God, to turn to God. They squandered their privileges. Oh, Jerusalem, your privileges, your privileges. The prophets came near. They gave to her the word of God. They took it for granted. They said grace is offered in God. They threw away the message. Oh, their privileges. And so it is for our loved ones. Brothers and sisters, have you marveled at the fact that God has saw fit in his wisdom out of all of your family to save you? Out of all of your family, all of your unbelieving family, that he decided to pick you out of the bunch. For some of you, you are the only believer in your family. Why? So that you might be the one who calls them to repent and turn to Christ and so that they will have no excuse. Oh, the times that you've begged, the times that you've pleaded with your loved ones, turn from your sin, repent, turn to Christ, place your faith in Him alone. And their great error is an overestimation of the, of the patience of God and an underestimation of the horror and finality of God's judgment. It won't be that bad and it won't last that long. The scriptures, meaning God himself says, oh, how wrong you are. Our unbelieving, our, mine too, unbelieving family and friends, they follow the path of privileged Israel, but rebellious Israel. They hear the gospel, they won't believe. Though their questions are answered, they still have more empty excuses of why they won't repent. 
Though they have been given time and opportunity, they continue to harden their hearts. They continue to be children of wrath, sons of disobedience, children of their father, the devil. That's a hard saying, isn't it? My son, my daughter, my brother, my sister, my cousin, my aunt, child of Satan. How dare you? Not how dare me, brothers and sisters. Take your objections up with Christ. It's a title that Christ gives to those who will not believe in him. In a sermon, listen to this, called Satan Among Us, Charles Spurgeon says concerning the unbeliever that requires that they see more than what God has obviously given them. He likens them to the day in which the sons of God in the book of Job come to give a report to God. And Satan is among them. Sermon says, uh, Spurgeon says in his sermon, Satan among us, Satan stands or Satan's presence before God was not beneficial to himself. He was there before the presence of God, but it did have no, no benefit. He never repented of all the ill that he had done. It does not appear that he had ever slacked in any of his diligent rebellion against God. His heart, his proud heart, was not humble. His lustful mind was not purified. He remained the same devil as he had mixed with the son, as he was before he mixed with the sons of God. Do you want your unbelieving brothers and sisters, friends and family members to gather with us for worship? Of course we do. We want them to hear the gospel over and over again even so that they can come and believe. But if they've heard the gospel over and over again from you, if they even attended church and will not return, it's the same as when Satan, Spurgeon says, was in God's presence, even among the sons of God. But he was the same devil that he had always been. If our loved ones continue in their rebellion, if their hearts are still proud, their minds are still lustful, then they remain the same sons, daughters of Satan as they were before they arrived. To hear the gospel and not repent and believe is a damnable thing, brothers and sisters. No, it's not your gospel presentation. It's not your fault. It's not because they've seen that you are actually not perfect in your life. It's not your fault. Those excuses will hold no water in the day of judgment. Paul tells the church in Rome, there is no one righteous, not even one. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us. And on the day of judgment, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be closed. And all the world become accountable to God. On the day of judgment, we will not be able to speak on behalf of our loved ones. We will not be appointed as the mediator of our loved ones. There is one mediator between God and man. The God man, Jesus Christ. You remember the rich man attempted to be the mediator for his brothers, asking that Abraham send Lazarus, send him to warn my brothers of the judgment to come. What was Abraham's response? They had the law and the prophets. 
They have the law and the prophets. The word is sufficient and you will not be their mediator. Our loved ones will not be able to speak. We will not be able to speak on their behalf and they will not be able to speak on their own behalf. We sometimes imagine that when we stand before the throne of God, God will say, now tell me about your life. Why did you do this? What about that moment right there? As if the, 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 the movie of our life, as it were, will be, will be replayed for us and God will ask us at every single moment of our sin, why did you do that? And why did you do that? Explain yourself. And that we will have some kind of explanation, some reason for why we've done what we've done. There will not be that moment. There will be no movie replaying our lives. And we will not get a chance to say, well, you see, God, what I was thinking here was, And when God executes his judgment, we will not be able to say, Your Honor, I object. That may work in the courts of earth, but not in the courts of heaven. There will be an appropriate silence in heaven by all creatures. We shall all be silent. There will be no legitimate objection. No case can or will be made. We shall all be silent as we stand and observe or endure the judgment of God. Abraham said concerning the judgment of God, before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the judge of all the earth will deal justly. He is perfect. In his judgment. He is forever perfect in his judgment. Hebrews 4.13 tells us that nothing is hidden from his sight. That there are no points that God will miss in his verdict of guilty. What will we do when God executes his guilty judgment upon our loved ones? Our loved ones. Will we cry out for them? You cry out for them now. Will we be sorrowful for them then? No. You can be sorrowful for them now. You will not be crying out for them on that day, nor will you be sorrowful for them on that day. You will pity them today, but you will not pity them then. Why not? Because you will see the just righteous judgment of God and there will be no sin hindering you from seeing God's judgments as being absolutely perfect today sin hinders us we want to give our friends and family members passes for their sin we want to give our friends and family members excuses for why they have not yet repented But there will not be those moments of apologetic in heaven. We will say the judge of the earth has judged rightly. We will see that rejection of Christ and his gospel and his grace deserves punishment from God. We will see that grace has been offered time and time again. And that sinner, though they be one who we were earthly related to, is no longer our brother or sister. We will be among our brothers and sisters. 
We favor them now. We won't favor them then. Because sin will be removed. I know that for some of us, we can't even fathom. Can't even fathom the thought. Because we are still polluted with sin. But one day all things will be clear. Sin and hard hearts will not be tolerated in heaven. And when God executes judgment, after the silence, we will say, Amen. Salvation belongs to our Lord. We will see the judgment of God and we will see it being as perfectly just. And this silence, brothers and sisters, it is absolutely appropriate. The unbeliever will have nothing to say. The believer will have nothing to say. Only God will speak from his holy temple. All mouths will be closed as the judge of all the earth declares his verdict. The Christian is one who, by the grace of God, has been given the humility to close our mouths. Think about this. You have been given the grace to actually close your mouth. While the believer wants to open his unbeliever wants to open his mouth and say something, but he will not be allowed. We have been given grace to to understand we have nothing to say. Our hearts will be humbled before the judgment of God. We will be able to say this, Lord Jesus. Thank you for being merciful to me, a sinner. So what should we do? Well, you are sorrowful for them now, right? Then reach out to them. You pity them now, don't you? Then pray for them. You want to speak on their behalf today, don't you? Then go to them. Tell them that there is no way for them to be saved apart from placing their faith in Christ alone, repenting of sin, and yielding themselves to His law. Go to them now. Because you will not pity them then. But if you truly have pity for them now, if you truly say, I will be sorrowful, then, no, no, you will not, you are now, so go to them now. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, if you are truly sorrowful for them, if you truly want them to be saved, then go to them now. Now while there is still, ta- while there is still time, uh, now while, there's, while the day is still today, go to them. Don't let what they, what you think they already know you're going to say stop you. And if it be the final time, and it be the final time, and you give them the warning, this will be the final time. You have tread upon these pearls for the last time. They will be offered to you no longer. But just know they were offered to you. No more words. No more excuses. Let us be warned as well. Let us not for one moment believe that simply because we attend worship at, with the sons of God, the saints, that, that there is any reward gained in mere attendance. Merely attending the gathering of the saints, merely bodily being present to the means of grace will be of no benefit to you. If you do not attend the means of grace by faith. 
Do you bow and close your eyes when we pray? Is it merely outward? Or is it both outward and inward? Because bowing your head and closing your eyes while one speaks is just formality. If you're not also praying, one speaks, but we all pray. One preaches, and we all engage in faith. One cup, one loaf, one faith. We all come together. Let us not think, I was here. Were you here only? Or were you truly engaged, heart, soul, mind, and strength? Like Calvin, with a burning heart, are you offering it to God? Completely, truly. Do we only go along with the one who prays, but our hearts are not engaged in prayer? Spurgeon says in that same sermon, Hosanna's will fall short of heaven. They do not come from hearts of faith to God. Let us come to worship with our hearts, minds, soul, and strength. Let us give sacrifices of praise. We will be among those who are silent in heaven when God executes his judgment. But while we are here, and even when we are there, let us lift our voices. Let us lift our voices in praise and glory and honor to God. Who is the righteous judge of all the earth and who will do and deal justly. The silence of heaven, the judgment of God.